Hey everyone, welcome back for another week of Questioning Christianity. Today we're taking on the question, can we trust the Bible? Now I'm going to say this every week, so I believe I'm a broken record, but <laughs> um, go back and watch week one of this series if you haven't already. In week one of this series, we lay out why we're asking these questions at all and what you're supposed to do with the answers to these questions. I'm afraid that if you, you don't understand the whole context for this series, you may not get as much out of this series as I would like, and it wouldn't be as helpful for you as you walk forward in your faith life. Um, so go back and find week one of this series. You can find it on our website, on our Facebook page, or on our YouTube channel. You can also find a podcast version of it uh, if you're into podcasts. So like I said, we're going through the question, can we trust the Bible today? Hasn't the Bible been translated like a thousand times? <laughs> That's uh, what a woman asked me once. I was at a bar about five years ago with actually somebody that many of you know, your former vicar, Paul Wilde. And two women came up to us, and I'm not really sure if they were trying to hit on us or not. Usually when I say something like, I'm studying to be a pastor. It's not that effective of a pickup line. Um, but that's what one of the women asked me. Hasn't the Bible been translated like a thousand times? Or maybe you've heard a question like that or, or a similar one. Something like, you really believe in a book that says that one man built a huge boat and got two of every type of animal on that boat. And then that boat floated on a worldwide flood. Or maybe you trust in a book that advocates for things like slavery and genocide and, and polygamy? Or maybe the Bible's just so old. Haven't we moved past that? But maybe you weren't asked those questions. You actually were the one asking those questions. You grew up in a Christian context. You trusted the Bible because, well, that's what they told you to do until you got to high school or university age and when they started to question because of maybe the lecture of a professor or something you read on a blog, saw on a YouTube video, or heard in a conversation with a friend. And so it's important for us to answer this question, can we trust the Bible? So I want to do three things with you today. First of all, I want to talk about just what the Christian church believes about the Bible, so that we're all on the same page and we don't have any misunderstandings about that. Second, I want to give you some answers to some common objections to the trustworthiness of the Bible. And then third, I want to make a case for you that um, you shouldn't just not doubt the Bible, but that you actually should trust in it. Okay, so that's where we're going, those three things today. So first, what, are the, what does the Christian church believe about the Bible? If you were to pick up your Bible, you would probably say that it was a book. In fact, the, the word Bible is just the Greek word biblios, which means book. Uh, but that's not totally accurate. Uh, the Bible isn't just a book, it's a compendium. You know what a compendium is? A compendium is a collection of books over a certain amount of time. And that's exactly what the Bible is. It's a compendium of 66 different documents by 40 different authors over about 1,500 years of authorship. The Bible starts with the Old Testament. The Old Testament are 39 of those documents that were written in multiple different genres. Uh, history, law code, prophecy, poetry, and wisdom literature. They were written between years of about 1400 BC and 350 BC. They were written by a number of different authors, some of whom were very rich, some who were very poor, some who were your average Joes, some who were kings of nations, some who were highly uh, theologically trained, and some who had barely any theological training at all. 
And all of those 39 books were written in Hebrew or Aramaic, which is a sister language of Hebrew. And what the Christian church would say about those 39 books of the Old Testament is that they all point forward to the coming Messiah. Uh, This Messiah, Messiah is just a Hebrew word that means chosen one or anointed one, was supposed to be the one who was going to save the world from its sins. Now, the Christian church believes that the Messiah was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So the New Testament then are the 27 books that come after the Messiah comes. These 27 documents were written by a number of different authors, some of whom were Jews, some who were Gentiles, some who were lowly uneducated fishermen, some who were highly educated doctors, some who believed in Jesus and walked with him, and some who didn't even believe in Jesus until he had already ascended into heaven. And those 27 books cover different genres, history, personal letters like one-to-one, letters from a pastor to a congregation or a group of congregations. There's some wisdom literature in there and even a genre called apocalyptic literature, which the closest thing we have in English literature is kind of like a meta-narrative to that. Those 27 books were all written in Greek, which was the common language of the Roman Empire in the first century because all of those books were written between about the year 45 or 50 AD until about the year 90 AD. And what the Christian church would say is that the New Testament is the story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, coming, dying on a cross, and rising again, and then the implications of that for the church moving forward. Now, this whole compendium, all 66 books, the church would say are all God's word. Uh, They would say they are both written by human authors, but also verbally inspired. That means that God gave the words to those authors, the exact words that he wanted to be written down in the Bible. Now, this is really summarized well, I think, by the Apostle Peter, who is one of the authors of of a couple of the New Testament books. In 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, I just want to read a couple of verses for you from there. Peter writes, We did not follow cleverly, cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he's talking about the New Testament. He says, we didn't make this stuff up. We were just eyewitnesses of it and we wrote it down. Okay. Then he talks about the Old Testament and he says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So he says, we also have the Old Testament, which is also God's word. And then he finishes with this. He says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what you should notice from there is that Peter says, look, the Old Testament prophecy is reliable and the New Testament witness is reliable because it all comes through the Holy Spirit working by human authors. And therefore, the Christian church would say that the Bible has absolutely no errors in it. We would say that because it was not just written by humans, but written by God through humans. And since God is perfect and makes no mistakes, we would also say the Bible has no mistakes in it. Now, you might be a skeptic, and you might not believe any of that. And that's fine. We respect that. But I think we just need to be on the same page about what we believe to be true about the Bible. Okay? 
So next, I want to take on a couple common objections to the trustworthiness of the Bible. And I want to give you some short answers. And I'm sure I will not cover every objection. I'm not intending to. I'm trying to give you some broad brush strokes of just common objections that you might hear and some short answers to those things so you can understand that the Bible can stand up to scrutiny. Um, the first objection I want to take on is that the Bible was written by the winners. You ever heard this, this idea of history being written by the winners? Uh, it's something that our culture actually is kind of wrestling with right now as we think about the history of life on this continent. We kind of think that, well, if there were conflicts between people, then the winners were necessarily there and had the resources in order to write down the histories about what happened in the conflicts. And because they're biased for their own cause, they're going to say that they were in the right or that they had the good motives or that they were doing the right thing, right? Um, so that's the idea of history being written by the winners. Is that true about Christianity? Did Christianity just write up the Bible so that they could centralize power, so that they can control people? Well, I'll give you a couple answers to this. Um, the first of those is that the Bible was written far too early to be written by winners. I remember I said the New Testament of the Bible was written between about the years 50 and 90 AD. Uh, Christianity was still illegal in the Roman Empire until the Edict of Milan in the 4th century by Emperor Constantine. And so up to that point, the Christian church was persecuted by the Roman government in some places, by um, the Jews in other places, and by all sorts of other religions all across the Roman Empire. Um, to be a Christian in the first four centuries was really not a good idea if you wanted to accrue power and wealth and influence. Um, you were generally considered to be scum for the most part. Uh, so the idea that the Christian church wrote the Bible it, because they were the winners and they were trying to accrue power um, just doesn't stand up to history. Second, I would say that the, the doctrine of the Bible doesn't stand up, or excuse me, does stand up to this idea that the Bible was written by the winners. Uh, Luke chapter 9, this is Luke chapter 9 verse uh, 23. This is Jesus talking and he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So the explicit teaching of the Bible from Jesus' mouth is, if you're going to be a Christian on earth, you don't get to be a winner. Now, you are long-term, eternally a winner in Jesus because you get to go to heaven and eventually to the new heavens and new earth with him. But as far as you are living on this earth, you must take up your cross, be willing to suffer with him daily and deny yourself. In other words, don't get what you want in this life so that you can be like Jesus. So, Obviously, Christianity has been used in some places to accrue power and influence over people, but that is in direct contrast to the explicit teaching of the Bible itself. And then I give you one last um, evidence that the Bible wasn't written by the winners. And that is that the way it's written doesn't allow for easy centralization of power. Uh, for example, look at the character of Peter. Uh, Peter, by many, is considered to be the leader of the early Christian church. But if you read through the gospel accounts, Peter always looks like an idiot. <laughs> I mean, he's always saying something dumb or doing something dumb or outright contradicting Jesus as Jesus tries to teach and do things. If Peter or other church leaders were trying to accrue power for themselves, why do they write a narrative that makes them look like bozos? <laughs> And then I would go a step further and, and ask you this question. When the resurrection accounts are written down, who are the first witnesses? The first witnesses of the resurrection are women, which may not seem very significant to you. And that's because you don't live in the first century. In the first century, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court. 
And so as they wrote down these stories, if you were trying to make up a story, you would not make women the first witnesses of the resurrection. You would make men the first witnesses of resurrection because their testimony was more valuable. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible actually says women were the first people to see Jesus alive. And that's because it really happened that way. It could have been written differently if they wanted to accrue power, but the fact is, it just happened that way, and they just wrote down what they saw. So I don't think you can say the Bible was written by the winners. And even though I've just focused on the New Testament for my answer, if you just consider the Old Testament for a second, the Old Testament was not written by the winners either. Uh, The Old Testament follows the history of God's chosen nation of Israel until Jesus comes and fulfills Israel. And if you think through Israel's history, there's about a hundred years where they are a world power under the reign of King David and his son, King Solomon. But outside of those hundred years, the nation of Israel is either wanderers in the wilderness, enslaved, occupied, exiled, or in civil war. (laughs) Um, So they're definitely not the winners who wrote down the Old Testament. Uh, The next objection I want to take on here is that the Bible is full of contradictions. You ever heard this? People say, well, there's this part of the Bible that doesn't agree with this part of the Bible. Um, What should we say to that? Well, first of all, if someone comes to you with this objection, I think the thing you should do is ask them what specifically they're talking about. Because more often than not, when people have brought up this objection to me, they haven't actually thought through the objection. They either read it somewhere as like a headline of an article or maybe heard it in passing as an argument against Christianity. And because they don't actually want to deal with the facts of Christianity, they just log that away and lob it out as a criticism. But I think you should ask a person, okay, well, what specific part do you think is in contradiction with itself? And if they do have a specific piece of the text that they think is in contradiction, then come and ask me and I'll show you how I think those things can be reconciled. Um, I'm one of these people who hates things that are inconsistent. (laughs) And so I've actually made it my business to find as many apparent contradictions as I can in the Bible and hear good answers to why those things aren't actually contradictions. And so far I've been satisfied with every answer that I've found. So I'd be glad to help you find answers to those things. But I would just say a second thing. Let's just for a second, pretend that you're a defense attorney and you have a client and that client is on trial and the prosecuting attorney brings up 10 witnesses who all say that they saw your client do the crime. But every one of those 10 witnesses has the exact same story word for word. What might you think as the defense attorney? If you're a good defense attorney, you would think, collusion, right? Uh, These people all got together and they figured out their story before they got up to the witness stand. Therefore, what they're saying is not true. I would actually submit to you that the fact that there are some variances in some of the accounts of the New Testament particularly is actually a testimony to its validity. That these were different guys who saw the same events just from different perspectives and noticed different things or remembered different things, but that all of them are true and all of them can hang together. And the fact that they aren't all exactly the same shows that it all all really happened. Uh, The next uh, criticism I want to take on is that the Bible advocates things that are regressive, such as slavery or misogyny, genocide, polygamy, these sorts of things. Um, What can you say to that? So if you open the Old Testament and you start at the beginning of the Bible, you quickly are confronted by some pretty messed up stuff. Uh, Think of a character like Abraham who both Christianity and Islam and Judaism all trace their lineage back to. Uh, He was a polygamous man and multiple wives. And his grandson, Jacob, 
whose name was changed to Israel, for whom the nation was named, he was a polygamous man also. Now, what do you say to that? Is the Bible advocating that we have multiple wives? Well, no. The first thing I would ask you to do is to consider that the Bible is maybe not endorsing what you think it's endorsing. And this is true across all of these things that we might consider regressive. For example, with polygamy, uh, as you look at the stories of Abraham or Jacob, for example, you notice that as soon as they take on a second or third or fourth wife, things go south fast. (laughs) I mean, these guys are just miserable because of their polygamous relationships. And that's because God wants to show that going against what he has prescribed for marriage is not a good idea. It's not just sinful, it's also bad practice. (laughs) It makes your life worse. And so in these lives of Abraham and Jacob, we see this, that their lives become just wrecks as soon as they engage in something like polygamy. Second thing I would say is check your cultural blinders. Every culture has blinders. They have things that they haven't really thought through or don't even realize are wrong because just everyone around them does it. For example, in Abraham or Jacob's culture, having multiple wives was just a normal thing that guys did at that time. And so even though those guys definitely knew what God had said about marriage, they just went along with whatever the culture said. Is it possible that we have the same trouble? That there are things that our culture just accepts that we don't even think about them and that they're actually wrong and that the Bible contradicts them and that's why we're so offended by the Bible? I would just ask you to consider something like pornography. Isn't pornography in many ways similar to polygamy? Isn't it the taking of multiple people and using them for your own pleasure? See, our culture thinks pornography is just a normal thing. But God would say it is clearly a sin and that it is destructive against the person who is watching the pornography and those who are acting in the pornography. Here's a crazy thing, though. As we look at polygamy and pornography and we put them next to each other, I would almost say that polygamy is better. And here's why. In a polygamous relationship, the husband did provide for all of his wives. He gave them places to live. He gave them food to eat. But in pornography, you can take what you want from a porn actor or actress and you don't have to give anything back. You just get to use them to consume their body and to not give anything back. Whose culture is backwards? But I want you to consider one more thing. God used Abraham and Jacob and many other gross sinners across the whole Old Testament and New. I mean, just think of some of the most famous characters besides Abraham and Jacob. Think of Moses. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, the greatest New Testament missionary, he was also a multi-time murderer. God used these people to spread his gospel. And that should teach you something, that the Bible is not a book of rules that you are supposed to follow in order to get right with God, but the story of God graciously taking sinners because sinners are all that there are, pulling them out of their sin and forgiving them so that he can use them to advance his gospel. And so whatever you've fallen into, whether it's pornography or something else, God forgives you and God can use you. And by the way, if you are struggling with pornography, I work for a ministry called Conquerors Through Christ who helps people who are struggling with pornography or family members who want to help their friends or family members who are struggling with pornography. 
You can look up conquerorsthroughchrist.net and find some really cool resources there if you're struggling against porn. So the next objection uh, that I want to take on is that the Bible is too old to be valuable anymore, or a variant of this objection would be, the people who wrote it were primitive people and didn't know what we know now. So you look out at our life right now, we have all sorts of technology. I mean, my goodness, you're watching me on a screen and I'm speaking into a microphone and, and we have the internet, which allows us to communicate all these files that we've created for worship and we can go into outer space for my goodness sakes. <laughs> um, what do we have to learn from some people who wrote 2000 or 3,500 years ago? Well, I again would ask you to check your cultural blinders. I mean, our culture, new is good and old is bad. Just think about it. How many of us are willing to trade in a perfectly good iPhone or a perfectly good car and spend a whole bunch of money to get a new one? How many of us, when we moved into our house, thought first about what we would update? And I'm unfortunately uh, just see this in our society too with people. Um, our society more than most takes our elderly people and puts them in assisted living or in nursing homes because we really don't want to be bothered to take care of them ourselves. And that may not be true of you, but you have to admit that's something that our culture does. See, in our culture, new is good and old is bad. And that's fine if you want to believe that, but I just want you to understand that you are in the vast minority by thinking that. If you look across the world's history, the many different cultures that have existed, the majority of them would actually say old is good and new is to be questioned. But I would actually ask you just to take the Bible and criticize it by that scrutiny. I look at the Old Testament book of Proverbs, for example. That's a book that was written 3,000 years ago by a man that uh, the Bible would consider and Christians consider to be the wisest man who ever lived. His name was Solomon. And you don't have to believe that he's the wisest man who ever lived, but I would just ask you to read the book of Proverbs and tell me that it does not have some real good wisdom for us today. Just because the Bible was written a long time ago does not mean that it does not have enduring wisdom and knowledge for us today. Uh, one last criticism then that I want to take on, and that is that the Bible has been translated so many times that we've lost the meaning. Uh, this is the question actually of the girl in the bar. You remember this? Um, and maybe you played a, a game like this in school where you play telephone, right? You have a message and you whisper it into your friend's ear and then your friend whispers it into your next friend's ear and the message goes all the way around the circle. And then at the end, someone tells you the story and it's completely messed up from its original, right? So isn't that what happened with the Bible? We've been passing this message on for literally thousands of years. How do we know we haven't lost its meaning? Well, we have 24,000 plus copies or fragments of ancient versions of the Bible. So we have copies or fragments of the Bible that go back even as early as the second century AD. And so what Bible scholars do is they take these 24,000 plus copies and they lay them all out and they say, let's compare all of them. And let's see where there are differences in the texts of the Bible that we have. And you know what they find? 99% agreement. Uh, as you open your Bible, you can know with 99% certainty that every single word on the page is exactly as it was originally written. And for that 1% that we can't be absolutely sure about, there is, first of all, a majority opinion on what should be the right text. And in every one of those 1% of instances, there is no doctrine of scripture that is compromised. It'll be things like, one text will say the Lord God, and the other text will say the Lord our God, right? It doesn't change the meaning of the text. It's just two ways of saying the same thing. 
So we have that certainty, and that's really impressive. Uh, but it gets even more impressive when you start to compare it to other works of antiquity. Just to name two works that are from about the same time period, uh, the Gallic Wars by Caesar were written about 100 years before the Bible was finished. And Caesar's Gallic Wars, no one really questions that Caesar was a guy and that he wrote the Gallic Wars, but we only have 10 copies that, from antiquity of the Gallic Wars. Or Tacitus, who was the greatest Roman historian, he wrote his Annals, which was kind of his masterwork of the history of the nation of Rome, uh, in about, a, or at, about 100 years after the Bible was finished. But we only have 20 copies of Tacitus's work. Now compare that. Just think, if you're on trial again and you have somebody who has 10 witnesses, somebody who has 20 witnesses, and somebody who has 24,000 witnesses, who is the most trustworthy of these? See, the Bible is able to be scrutinized and able to be tested, and it stands up to all the tests of whether it's made it from its original writing to now. But some of you who maybe speak a second language, you know there's still things that are sometimes lost in translation. You might remember that I said the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic and the New Testament was written in Greek. And it just so happens that you're an English speaker and I'm an English speaker and we read out of English Bibles. So isn't something lost in translation? And I would say, yeah, there, there are some things that are lost in translation. But the comfort for you is that I and your former pastor, Pastor Joel, and every one of your vicars have been trained to read and write Greek and Hebrew which allows us to go back to the original languages and the original text and find out what those original authors actually meant when they wrote down their words. And if you've listened to my preaching, at least uh, for any length of time, you know that if I see uh, something in the original text that doesn't make it over into our English, I'll let you know about it. Because I want you to be sure that you're getting exactly what the original authors wrote. But I think there's one more reason that you shouldn't worry uh, about the message of the Bible being lost in translation, and that's from Jesus' words himself. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus says this. It says, Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And when he says the law there, he's talking about the scriptures. And he says that not even the smallest letter will disappear until heaven and earth are done. When he comes back and destroys this earth and this heaven, and he creates a new heaven and a new earth for us to live in with him forever. So if Jesus said that the word is going to last, it's not going to be lost, and he rose from the dead, I'm going with that as my final answer. Now, I know I haven't covered every single one of the objections that you could have to the trustworthiness of the Bible. And so if you have a specific question about the trustworthiness of the Bible that I haven't answered, you can ask that question by going to our website, crossoflife.net. And under the Start Here tab, you'll find Ask Our Pastor. You can ask it there. And I'll remind you about that when I'm done with the sermon. So you can ask any questions that you have there. But what I want to do for the balance of our time is make a case to you that you shouldn't just not not trust the Bible, <laughs> but that you actually should put your faith in what the Bible says. Now, the first thing I want you to consider is prophecy fulfilled. Let's back up just for a second and ask ourselves, if the Bible was not widely considered to be God's word by Christians, and God wrote a book, and God wanted us to know that he wrote a book, how would God make it known to us that this book was written by him and not just any other human author? 
See, I think many skeptics haven't thought through that. They haven't thought through what criteria they actually would like the Bible to have in order to prove itself to be God's word. So I want you to consider this. Um, When you log onto a website or onto your computer and you forget your password, what does the website or the computer often do? It, It often gives you personal questions. Asks you things like, you know, what was your first car? What city did you grow up in? What was the name of your first grade teacher? Because it's trying to verify your identity by things that should only be in your mind. See, God does the same thing with the Bible. To prove that the Bible is his word and not the word of any other human, he puts things in the Bible that only he would know. And we call these things prophecy. Now, prophecy has a wide definition, but very narrowly, it means the ability to predict something in the future consistently and specifically. And God does that in multiple ways in the Bible to prove that he is the one who wrote the Bible. Now, no human can accurately, specifically predict the future by themselves, right? But God can. And he actually tells us that that's how he proves himself to be speaking through the scriptures. And this is from Deuteronomy 18, verse uh, 22. God says, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. So he says, if a prophet speaks and it doesn't come true, then you don't have to trust him. He's not speaking from me. He repeats the same idea in Jeremiah 28, verse 9. He says, the prophet who prophesies peace will be recognized as one truly sent by the Lord only if his prediction comes true. So what God says is, here's how you test whether a guy is speaking for me or not. He has the ability to predict the future accurately and specifically because I give him that ability. So has God done this in the Old Testament? Uh, Absolutely. Just in one chapter of the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah written 700 years before Jesus was born and died and rose again. In chapter 53, Isaiah has four really specific details about the coming Messiah that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In that chapter, he lays out that the Messiah will be killed by some sort of piercing. That There's something that's going to go into him and it's going to kill him. He also predicts that at that Messiah's trial, he is not going to speak a word in his defense. He also predicts that that Messiah is going to be buried in the tomb of a rich person and that that Messiah is going to come back to life someday all in chapter 53. And guess what happens when Jesus Christ comes? He is crucified, which is piercing through his hands and through his feet and through his side with a spear. He does not give a word of defense in his, at his trial. He's buried in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he rose again. And that's just one chapter. Uh, Isaiah will also tell us um, the city where Jesus would grow up what family he would be born into, and that he would be born of a virgin. And Isaiah is not the only prophet in the Old Testament. Uh, Other prophets would tell us the city where Jesus was going to be born, the time in the world's history that he would be born, that he would wear a crown of thorns when he died, that he would be betrayed, and they actually even predicted the exact amount of money he would be betrayed for. And they even described crucifixion before crucifixion was even invented. (laughs) See, these guys were writing hundreds or in some cases over a thousand years before Jesus came and they predicted all of these things specifically and accurately. In fact, a couple scholars that I I read said there are over 2,000 prophecies in the Old Testament that are specific and have come true. 
And one scholar particularly named Alfred Edersheim, uh, he was actually uh, grew up Jewish and he became a Christian. Uh, he went back and he scoured the teachings of all the rabbis on the Old Testament. And he said that the rabbis have 465 prophecies in the Old Testament that they consider to be about the Messiah. And Edersheim found out that every single one was fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. See, I think you should believe that the Bible is God's word because God has overwhelmingly proved it to be something that only he could have written. Second, I want you to trust the Bible because of the New Testament's witness. Uh, if you would compare the Bible to other holy books of other world religions, you would see that the Bible is unique in one glaring way. The Bible does not come to us first and foremost as a theology book. Now, before you all throw your coffee and storm out, <laughs> the Bible is a theology book, but it doesn't come to us first and foremost as a theology book. See, if you were to compare the Bible to, for example, the Quran, the holy book of Islam, you would know that Islam, uh, or sorry, Muhammad got the book of, uh, the, that becomes the Quran from a prophecy that was given to him by Allah. And that he was the only one there when Allah showed up and told him what to write down. And he wrote down the Quran and that's become the holy book of Islam. And in that book, the Quran, there are all sorts of teachings and ways of living and things that you need to believe and remember and do to be a Muslim. Uh, but there's a couple problems with that. First of all, you have to take Muhammad's word for it. Uh, he was the only guy who was there. There was no one else who saw Allah show up to him. So you have to just trust one guy's opinion about one thing that happened in a corner. And second, it's just a philosophy. It's a way of living. It's some principles for life, which means you can't disprove it. Anybody can live by any philosophy of life that they want to. And in some sense, you, you can't actually prove that to be wrong. But Christianity is different. See, first of all, Christianity does not happen in a corner. Oh, that's what the Apostle Paul said, right, in his defense to King Agrippa and Festus. He says, look, you guys are well aware of all the stuff that happened. I'm just telling you what the scriptures said and what we all saw with Jesus. He says, this is not done in a corner. This is real history that multiple people can attest to. In fact, in one of his letters, the Apostle Paul says, there are over 500 people who saw Jesus at one time, and most of them are still alive. You could just go check with them and see if this actually happened. I'm not making this up. And because the message of Christianity is not a philosophy, but history, then it's provable. In other words, you can go back and you can check historical records and make sure that the Bible checks out. And that makes the Bible absolutely, completely unique. The Bible, first and foremost, comes to us as a history book. And it is the most scrutinized and attested, remember the 24,000 copies, and enduring history book of all time. there's one last reason that I think you should trust the Bible. And that's because of the message that's contained in the Bible. See, the Bible speaks a different message than anything else that anyone else is speaking you, to you in any other part of your life. If you think about it, every relationship, every job application, every job that you're working for, every social gathering, Everything that you do in your life is giving you one rule, and that's perform. Be enough. Do enough. Be smart enough. Be skinny enough. Be, be uh, successful enough. Be powerful enough. 
make the right moves, make the right choices, be with the right people at the right times. And if you're not, we're not going to accept you. We're not going to want you. We're not going to keep you. We're not going to bring you in. That's what every single part of your life is screaming at you every day. Be enough, do enough, but the Bible is not. The Bible is giving you a different message. And it's honestly the thing that keeps me going. Whenever I have this question, can I really trust the Bible? I remember that the Bible has a completely different message than every other part of my life. Because I like to think I'm a pretty good father and a pretty good husband, but there are times when I neglect my daughters and I don't love my wife nearly half as much as I love myself. And I like to think that I'm a pretty good pastor, but there are times when I take shortcuts and I neglect the duties that God has given me as a pastor. And there are times I like to think that I'm a pretty good neighbor, but I get short in my temper with my neighbors. And sometimes I like to think I'm a pretty good friend, but often I'd rather not make other people's problems my problems. See, I'm not good enough. I I don't do enough. Every day, I realize the many ways in which I've failed and how I'm not living up and how I'm a completely ordinary, average person in the world. And that, honestly, if I just look at my life, there's really no significance to me. And then I remember the gospel, the message of the Bible that says you don't have to be enough. In fact, you won't be enough. And that's okay because Jesus has been enough in your place. He has earned all of the love and affection and acceptance that you needed from God by his perfect life on earth. And he has credited it to your account, taken your sin on himself, died with it on a cross, buried it in the ground, and came back to life to prove to you that he is God and can do that. And that when he does it, it counts for you. And none of that is dependent on you. It's all God's gift to you. That is the message of the Bible. That you are loved and accepted and wanted and included by the God of the universe. Not because you're a good person, but because God is good to you. See, what Christianity offers you, what the Bible offers you, is three things that nowhere else in the world can give you. It can give you freedom from your guilt. Most of us try to make up for our guilt or push aside our guilt. Christianity says you can be forgiven for your guilt. Christianity, the Bible can give you ultimate confidence. Many of us try to be confident in ourselves until we realize that we're failures. But the Bible says that God has made you righteous in his eyes and has purposed you to do amazing things for his kingdom on this earth. You can walk out your door knowing that God Almighty is looking over your life and using you for his good. And third, it can give you humility. Some of us try to be humble, but we realize that often we're trying to make ourselves humble in order to get more attention, which is literally the opposite of humility. But what Christianity, the Bible, offers you is the understanding that all the things that you receive from God, you didn't earn for yourself, but they are still freely and certainly given to you. That's the message of the Bible. That's the message that we need to hear. But that presents us with a problem. And I think that's a problem that both Christians and non-Christians struggle with. The problem is that we treat the Bible a lot like a young man treats marriage. You know how young men tend to treat marriage, right? Uh, I don't want any part of it. (laughs) Sounds like too much time, too much work, too much money, and I'm going to lose my freedom. (laughs) And that's how most young men feel until they meet a girl. And they fall in love with that girl. And they want to do whatever they can for that girl. And so they marry that girl. And none of those things that they were worried about changed. They have less time and they have less money. And it, it, it is hard work and they have less freedom, but they don't care anymore. 
because it stopped being a category, it became a relationship, it became a person. And those things that they were struggling with, they, they were willing to do them for the sake of this person that they loved. Sometimes I wonder if we, especially us who call ourselves Christians, believe that Jesus was a real person. I know that for me, one of the uh, penny drop moments of my faith was when I realized that Jesus was a real person. He's not just an idea. He's not just a made up character. He's not just 2000 years ago. He's right now a real person in my life. And because he's a real person, I can no longer treat him like a category of things that I can push aside if I don't really like it. I have to treat him as a person, a person who has shown me ultimate love by giving up his life for me. And who now, as the risen Savior, continues to be active in my life. When I think of him like that, it makes the Bible his love letters to me. Now, the the whole metaphor of love letters from God is a little bit overblown in my opinion. But what you can say is that the Bible is God's word to you and that God loves you. And so he tells you the story of what he was willing to do in order to save you. And in the same way, if that man fell in love with that girl and they were apart for a while, he would get so excited when she would text him or email him or, or, or write him a letter in the mail. I think Christians ought to feel the same about the Bible. But do we? When you're in love, you stop everything to pull your phone out to read a text from your beloved. Is that how we pull out the Bible every morning? I'm afraid it's not that way for me a lot of the time. And I would think also not for you. So what you need to know is that, first of all, Jesus forgives you for that. But then now you have this amazing message from God to you in your hands every day to open up and to find hope and wisdom and knowledge and direction. And it's all freely given to you from the God of all grace. But I realize that there are some of you who are not Christians who are maybe watching this. And so I want to give you one last thought before we wrap up here. And that is that you need an authoritative Bible in order to experience real, true love. Our society has a concept of love that is essentially acceptance or affirmation. You love me if you let me do whatever I want to do and you cheer me on as I go and do that. Frankly, that's not love. That's worship. Like constantly affirming and accepting whatever somebody does, regardless of what we think of it, that is the behavior of a person worshiping their God. That's what we do for God, right? We may not always understand what God is doing, but we worship him because he is God and we are not. But oftentimes that's the kind of relationship that we crave because deep down inside of every one of our hearts, we want to be God. We want to control the world and we want everything in the world to focus on us and work for us. And so we try to surround ourselves with people or things that will affirm us in doing whatever we already want to do. But that's not love. That's worship. To experience true love, you need to find someone or something that will challenge you, will offend you, but will still stick by you. You know this if you're married. If you had a spouse who just agreed with you all the time, that might be nice for a while, but that wouldn't be a real relationship. Your marriage becomes a real marriage when your spouse disagrees with you and then still stays with you. That's what God does. The Bible may offend you. It may challenge you. It's challenged every single culture in all sorts of different ways because it's not from humans. It's from God and therefore is not congruent with one culture on the earth, but is congruent with God's will who is outside of this world and is perfect 
in, in contrast to a world of sin. But the beauty of the Bible is that even though it challenges you, you, even though it calls you out for your sin, it will stick by you and remind you time and time again that for all the times that you have offended God and have sinned against him, Christ forgives you and lets you walk free and brings you into his family. And so I pray that that message of that real man, Jesus Christ, who spoke and whose words we have contained in the Bible comes to your heart and makes its home there. I pray that you believe that. And I pray that every one of us, Christian or not, take some time this week to open up our Bible. And we have ways that you can do that. You can watch my face right here doing this on our daily devotions on our YouTube channel and Facebook page and Instagram. You can join a life group, which we're going to start up pretty soon here in virtual ways, at least until the pandemic sort of, sort of subsides so we can study God's word together. You can do it in personal ways, in your family or just by yourself. But make sure that you are ultimately bringing that word and studying it with other people. Because what the Bible tells us is that the Christian community does not exist by itself. It's not just me and my Bible. It's us and our Bible. The Bible that God gave us and that we learn from and that we trust in. I pray this message helped you. And I would love to pray for you now. Lord Jesus, work through your word comfort our hearts from our sin, to correct us from the cultural blinders that we have and the sins that we go back to that so easily entangle us. Make our community a community that loves the Bible, that studies it regularly, that speaks it to each other, that memorizes it so its words are always on our lips. And I pray that the words of the scripture be spread into this community so that more people can know the message that they can find nowhere else but in your scriptures. We ask it in your name. Amen.